0: This is the Westbrook Community Church Sermon Series, Sunday, November 26, 2023. Gentle and Lowly, Christ's Enduring Love Nate tells us how Christ's love did not end on the cross. Hey, good morning, everybody. If we haven't met before, my name is Nate Hayden. I'm the next-gen pastor here, and as you see, Kevin was giving the announcements, and so I get to give the message today, which I'm super excited about. Um, And I'm super excited because this is a great opportunity for you to get to know me better. Um, I feel like a lot of people know me pretty well, but I feel like there's always little things that you can drop in, new things you can learn. And uh, one thing that I think a lot of people know is that I love to talk. I think that that comes through. uh, It's part of the reason I'm on stage. It's also part of the reason that if I've ever talked to you, you're usually staying after service because it can be 10, 20, 30 minutes about me, about whatever I'm going on about, right? But um, as much as I love to talk, there's another part of me that uh, I love, and it's the competitive part of me. I, uh, I love to compete. I love to go at it, and I love uh, to strategize. That's why this... Uh, this Thanksgiving, I was I was at a Thanksgiving and we started to play Risk and I got really into it. I got really excited to play Risk because it's just one of those games where you get, you know, you get to use your strategy and you get to be this kind of negotiator. You're saying, hey, don't attack me here. Hey, I won't attack you here and that kind of stuff. And And for me, I'm kind of a shrewd negotiator. At least I like to believe that I am. Um, but that true negotiating uh, to risk victories, that really didn't start at, uh, at on Thursday, right? Me being a great negotiator, it didn't start with winning a game of risk. It really started when I was a kid. And uh, when I was a kid, I loved to talk maybe even more than I do now. And I loved to negotiate, again, maybe more than I do now. Because I thought everything in my life is something that we could negotiate. My parents would see it all the time. We had a rule between me and my siblings, and it was always, uh, you cut, I choose. And so the idea was, if you had a sandwich, you had a cookie, whatever, if you had to split it, one person would cut it, and then the other person would pick which side they wanted, kept it pretty even-steven, except for I was always trying to take advantage of that system. So I was trying to make sure that, hey, you know, I, I know it's you cut, I choose but what if I cut and I choose? You know, that's kind of a fun idea. Maybe we should try that one, right? And so I was always trying to kind of get things to be my advantage. I was always trying to take advantage of these situations. Same thing happened with chores. I was always kind of take, trying to take advantage of the chore system. Um, you know, my parents uh, were very good at about assigning chores. They weren't always good about telling us what kind of allowance came with that. And, uh, and so I'd always be like, hey, well, hey, you know, you've got a lot of chores to do and a lot of stuff, and I'm, I'm happy to do it, but we just got to know what that dollar figure is going to look like. And my parents really were never good about giving me the dollar. They were always like, hey, if you do that, We'll take care of you. That's kind of the deal. And I said, you know, I like that deal, but I like it better if you could tell me exactly what I'm going to get. And so that was the negotiator in me as a kid. But there was another part of the chores negotiation process that, uh, that happened when I was probably 9, 10, 11, and it was always with me and my brother. We'd be assigned, you know, four or five, six things to do in the week, and I would go up to him and be like, hey, we, we got we to cut these chores up. We got to make it fair. We got to wheel and deal. We got we to, you know, let's make something happen here. How about this? you mow 70% of the lawn, but I'll mow around the trees. And that's really the hardest part. So you should give me credit that I did the hardest part and you should clean the bathroom. And then, and I would go week after week, every single chore, we divvy it up. Nobody's just cleaning the bathroom. Somebody's cleaning the floor. Somebody's cleaning the counter. And we would do this week after week after week. And finally, my dad kind of walks in in the middle of one of these negotiations and we do this every week. Um, He usually doesn't care, but there was just something about it today. He looks at it and says, hey, can you just do what I asked you to do? Can you just do your chores and you do your chores, no more negotiating, no more cutting it up. And let me tell you that changed how chores were done for that week. And then the next week we came back, and we started to negotiate just again. It's just the way those things go. See, I don't think all of us are as shrewd of negotiators as I was at 9, 10, 11, but I do think that all of us kind of have that same feeling, right? We don't want to do anything unless we know that there's going to be a good outcome. We don't want to do anything unless we know that we have an advantage, unless we know that we're getting something in return. There's another great example from this time of the year, um, and some of you I think are going to understand what I'm talking about, other people are going to roll your eyes, but this time of year uh, we see a lot of rom-coms, Some people call them Hallmark movies. Uh, And I'm willing to put on record, we have a camera even, I love Hallmark movies. There's just something about Hallmark movies that are just so fun. And it's incredible this time of year. It starts with Halloween. It goes to Thanksgiving. It goes to Christmas. That's the peak. But then there's still New Year's Eve, right? You always get a good New Year's Hallmark uh, movie. And the amazing thing is it's the exact same movie. They do 60 movies a year and they're all the exact same movie. And yet I eat each and every single one of those things up. I love them. I love them. There's just something about it. But there's a part of rom-coms that I love. There's a certain storyline, again, because there's only so many rom-com storylines. My favorite is the I love you storyline. It's a great movie. It's a great TV show. It's just the boyfriend or girlfriend wants to say, I love you. And they're scared. If I say, I love you, will they say it back? Right? That's the whole storyline. But they sit there and they, they ask their friends, Hey, how do I say, I love you? How do I do it? How, you know, I'm scared. I don't know what to do. And, and it kind of exemplifies something we have in our own life that all of us can agree with. We all kind of hate being the initiator, right? We hate putting ourselves out there. We hate being the first one that has to do something. That's why we get so nervous when we have to say, I love you, because there's a chance that they don't say it back. And it leads to some of the best Rom coms that there is. See, today as we close our gentle and lowly series, uh, we're going to talk about how Jesus isn't like us, right? Jesus isn't like us. He isn't like the rom coms where he's scared to say, I love you, but actually, Jesus loved us and he showed us his love on the cross. But today we're going to go beyond just merely talking about how Jesus loved us in that moment, how Jesus loved us then, but we're going to talk about how Jesus loves us now and how we should understand that Jesus is going to love us forever and that we should be confident in Christ. He's willing, or we should be confident in Christ because we know that he's already done the work and that he will continue to love us into perpetuity. So today we're gonna to be talking, or we're gonna be reading Romans five. Um, Romans five is, uh, is a great chapter. It's an iconic chapter. There's some verses that many people have heard because it's part of the Romans road. Um, I love the book <laughs> of Romans because it's, I would say uh, Paul's preeminent book. It's kind of his, his biggest book in terms of theology. Um, what we have to remember about Paul is that he was this thinker, but he really was kind of more of a past, pastor, right? He's sending letters out to these churches to kind of give them specific information, which means that when we read any of his writings, we have to understand it in its context. It was meant for somebody specific. It was meant for a specific area at a specific time. And understanding that, we never get a full picture of what I would say Paul's theological thought is. But if we did get the clearest picture, it comes in the book of Romans. And so we're going to be looking at Romans 5, and really only going to be looking at about six verses. But those six verses have so much truth, and they explain why we should be confident in God, why we should be confident in Christ. So if you're with me, we're going to look at Romans 5, starting in verse 6. And it says, you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Wow. What a verse. What a truth. What a truth that we often miss. I think sometimes we miss the very basic part of this verse. right? The fact that Christ died for us. I think sometimes we overlook it. Obviously, a lot of us know that he died for us, but we, we seem to forget it. We, we cry out to God. We say, God, where are you? God, what are you going to do in my life? How are you going to answer these prayers? And we kind of forget that he did the most significant thing on the cross, something that was so transformational. It brought millions upon millions and billions of people to him. But today, I want to move past just looking at the cross. I think the cross is so important, but I think sometimes we get so caught up in that one moment that we forget about the timing at which Jesus went to the cross. He didn't simply go to the cross for people that loved him. He went for the ungodly, for the powerless, for the people that were disinterested. See, like I said, Jesus isn't like us, right? He's not cautious in his approach. He's not waiting for us to say, I love you first, right? He's not collecting sign-ups. He's not saying, hey, I will go to the cross if you promise you'll believe in me. No, he went first, And he went for people, again, that were powerless, that were ungodly, that had done every wrong thing. And more than that, they also just didn't care about him. Some people even cursed him. Some people don't believe. But Christ went for all of those people the same way. And I love the way that Paul writes these three verses. Uh, and, and verse 8 is a verse that a lot of people know because it's part of this Romans road of salvation. So a, a lot of people have heard it via salvation message. But uh, verse 7 is the one that I find the most interesting of these three because it's so different than the other two. See, the Romans 5, 6, it says, Christ died for the ungodly, for the powerless. And Romans 8 says, Christ died for the sinners. Right? He died while we were still sinners. But verse 7 has like almost a distinctly different voice. Uh, it's, it's in there, and, and you can almost picture Paul when he's writing it. You can almost picture that he's he's almost chuckling to himself. He's he's making this point. He's comparing us to Christ and showing how different we truly are. And so if we look at Romans 7 again, it says, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. See, Paul's pointing out something that all of us probably know, but maybe have never said, which is there is a very select group a very small amount of people that you would take a bullet for. In your life, there's a very small group, right? It might be your spouse. It might be your mom and your dad. It might be your kids. It might be your best friend, but that group is small, right? And that group is also consists of people that already love you, that already care about you, that will reciprocate that to you, right? Those are people that, that are knowledgeable of you. But here's the other thing. they They're not evil. They're not bad. They're not already in prison. Nobody here would die for somebody that was bad. See, that's what Paul is trying to say. That's why he includes this verse. He says, verse 6, God would die for the ungodly. In verse 8, he said, Christ died for us while we were still sinners. And he includes verse 7 as a juxtaposition between us and between Christ to make it so incredibly clear that we are not like Jesus in this way. But here's the amazing thing. It's good that we're not like Jesus in this way. If Jesus was like us... If Jesus was temperamental, if Jesus waited until we initiated, until we turned from him, we would have no hope, right? We, we would never head towards him. We, even, even knowing that he died for us, a lot of us have to be pulled along to get to this point. But Jesus knew that. And that's why he came, and that's why he died for the ungodly. That's why he offered mercy and grace and hope before we cared about any of those things. See, we can be confident in Christ because Christ died for us while we were still sinners. While we were still far away, while we had never turned to him, he came and he died for us. And see, I think a lot of us um, really understand that point. I think if you you actually want to have a faith, if you want to be a Christian, it comes down to understanding that point. If you want to say, uh, turn your life from I live life on my own terms, I do my own thing, to the full surrender to Jesus, we have to understand justification. We have to understand that Christ came and that he died for us. And he died for us while we were still sinners. It's so important for us to understand that point. But here's what's really funny about this passage. That's not even the point that Paul is really trying to make. He spent all of chapter 4 talking about justification, explaining what justification through faith is, that we were made right by the fact that Jesus died. But then in chapter 5, he's he's kind of shifting points, but he wants to point to that. He includes these three verses because he needs to point to what God has already done in order to point to what God has is doing and the present security that we have in that. And that's where we really get to the heart of what Paul's trying to write in these verses. It comes in verse 9 and verse 10. And Paul says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? See, Paul wants us to understand that we have a distorted theology. He, he writes those those three verses before so he can point to this. And he says, hey, you seem to understand the justification through faith part, but you don't seem to understand your present security. You don't understand that God is not getting ready to kick you out. He understands that we have a distorted theology in the sense that we think that our conversion experience, the day that we say yes to Christ, the day that we accept that he died on the cross and we take on that faith, he he understands that a lot of us think of that as the most seminal moment in our lives. And in a lot of ways we should, but the problem is we conflate, it's the most seminal moment in our life, with this is the closest we're ever going to be to God. And the problem with that is that we have a love for God and we know that God has a love for us, but we believe that that love is filled with disappointment. We believe that that moment, we're up here, that Every moment since then, every time we sinned, every time we struggled, we have been pushed further and further from God. Every single time. See, we believe that God's heart is cold towards us. Yes, he died for us while we were still sinners, but every single time we sin, his heart gets colder and we get pushed further away. And eventually, we're going to get pushed further and further away until we're no longer with him at all. See, Paul attacks this theology. Paul points this out. Why? Because he understands it because he's just like us. Uh, Later in Romans, he's going to say, I'm the chief sinner, right? Why do I do the things that I know I shouldn't do, right? He he speaks to this problem. He understands that that's not just a Paul problem. That's not just an us problem, but that's for every single human being has at some point in their life felt this, basically worked through this issue. And it's exemplified through Adam and Eve. It's why they hide in the garden. It's because they believe that God's love is temperamental and that they're going to be pushed outside of it. But the amazing thing in Romans 5, 9 through 10 comes truly in verse 10. Verse 10 really shows us the heart of what Paul is wanting us to understand in this message. Remember, he already explained justification. This isn't about justification. It's about our reconciliation with God, the fact that we are part of his family. And we read, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? See, what Paul's trying trying to explain there, what Paul's trying to get us to understand is that Christ died while we were sinners. Christ died while we were far away. So how much more? Will he be willing to die for us now that we're newly justified sons and daughters? Now that we're a part of God's family, now that we've been bought back. He so desperately wants us to understand that when we're a part of God's family, we are a part of God's family. And there's a period on that. And I think a lot of you have learned in this past week that family is pretty hard to get rid of. Some of you are probably still hanging out with Thanksgiving family and it's already Sunday. And you're thinking, hey, when is that flight back? When are they heading home, right? The amazing thing is that God's a little bit a better host than we are. And so he's not looking for when you're gonna be leaving, but he's just so excited that you're here. See, in this moment, when we explain that We should be confident in Christ. We should be confident in Christ first because we know Christ died for us while we were still sinners. But we should continue to be confident because Christ will not leave us now that we are his sons and daughters, now that we are part of his family. But I want to address an important point about this. The the fact that he will not leave us now that we're his sons and daughters, it's so important in that same breath to also talk about sin, right? Sin is a real issue. Uh, Sometimes when we talk about the fact that God will love us forever, it seems like we've left that whole sin question. Um, It leaves a lot of us wondering, like, okay, yeah, God will love me forever. Also, are we going to deal with the sin issue? And it's really important. But I want to point you to something that uh, I think a lot of us might have noticed in our own lives, which is we struggle with sin. We struggle with sin. We have issues with sin, right? We continue to do the things we don't want to do. But we also struggle with sin in the sense that we get angry with ourselves. We get frustrated with our sin. We, we we question, God, why am I like this? Why do I continue to go back to these same things? See, we deal with sin. But let me tell you that the fact that we struggle with sin, the fact that we question, like, why we continue to do these things, that in and of itself is a sign of our growth. See, there's a, a term in the Christian world, and the term is sanctification. And sanctification uh, kind of... The easy definition is that it's the process by which we're made holy. It's the process by, in which we become more like Christ. And I love the inclusion of the word process, right? It's not about saying when we have our conversion experience, when we say, God, I believe in you, that in that moment we're radically transformed, completely different, don't have to deal with sin anymore. But it's about saying that that is the start of a relationship with God has become more and more like him. So here's what I have to say. Hate sin. Hate sin. Have a disdain for sin in your heart. Fight temptation at every single turn because it's worth fighting. But here's another thing you should know. When you sin, when you mess up, the devil is going to come and he's going to accuse you, right? It's, it's what he does. He speaks lies. And he's going to tell you, hey, your conversion experience was real. That moment was real, but every moment after that hasn't been real. And God has pushed you further away and his heart is cold towards you. But let me remind you of a truth. Christ is not going to leave you now that you are a son and a daughter. So hate sin, deny the lies of the devil, but also run to the throne of grace. When you sin, when you fall short, run to the throne of grace and confess your sins to God. And the reason that you confess your sins to God is you could believe he can do something about it. You believe that he has the power to reconcile you, to bring you back. And that's why we can run to the throne of grace. It's not something that we hide from. It's not something that we're scared from. But we confess our sins to God because we believe it's powerful. We believe that he can take those things away. See, we should be confident in Christ. First, because Christ died for us while we were still sinners. And second, because Christ is not going to leave us now that we are his sons and daughters. And the final reason we should be confident in Christ is because we can boast in what Christ did. And that is such, thank you, that is such a weird word to use, right? Boast is such a weird word to use. Um, It's something that I have been accused of potentially in the past, being a little cocky, um, you know, being a little arrogant, letting people know that when I win a game of risk, it's because I am a master negotiator and strategist. Um, People don't always like that. Um, But I use the word boast here because Paul actually uses the word boast here. And I think it makes so much sense. So if we look at the last verse in our passage, Romans 5, verse 11, we see not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. He uses the word boast here because if we're truly going to be confident in something, we can boast about it. We can say, I believe in it. I believe in it so much and you should believe in it too, right? We we can stand firm that the things that we're saying are 100% backed up with Jesus. See, he doesn't say that we can boast in our own actions. He doesn't say we can boast in our salvation because we had anything to do with it. But we boast in our salvation because Jesus did something on the cross. We boast in our justification because Jesus made a way to be a part of his family. We boast about our place in heaven, not because we bought it, but in fact, it was bought and paid for by the blood of the Lamb. And that is something worth boasting about. That is something worth getting excited about. That's something worth telling other people about. And more importantly, getting ready to tell the devil it, because he will come and he will whisper and he will accuse and he will say that that moment of conversion, yeah, maybe that happened, but everything else has been fake. But what's awesome is we can boast in our God. We can boast in what Christ did. And then it's not about our perfection. It's about his perfection. It's not about our actions, but it's about his. And our salvation is backed by the most powerful thing in the world, which is our God. Another great example is when my football team wins, I don't boast about my actions. I boast about theirs. When the Packers beat the Lions on Thanksgiving Day and set me up for an entire weekend of happiness... I don't boast about my football accomplishments, right? I'm not letting people know I played high school football and I was a lineman and I didn't play very much, right? It's not very interesting, it's not very significant, it's not why I'm excited about my team. No, I post about my team. I, I boast about my quarterback. I talk about how good they played on Thursday. But here's the amazing thing, that when I boast about them, I'm boasting about their actions, but I share in the glory. I share in the winnings. And in that same way, we should boast about our God. We should boast about Jesus. We should boast about the salvation that he gave us because it's something worth boasting about. It was so significant. It was way more significant than any football game that'll be quickly forgotten. It's the most transformational thing that allowed so many people to come to him and will allow each and every one of us to come to him. See, we should be confident in Christ for three reasons. The first reason is because Christ died for us while we were still sinners, while we were still far away. But also because Christ isn't going to leave us now that we're his sons and daughters. And finally, we should be confident in Christ because we can boast about what he did. So today, uh, as we close, we kind of move into this final moment of reflection and we have our final song and, and we're actually gonna do kind of a moment of quiet reflection to just give you an opportunity to, uh, to talk to God about this message, to talk to God about why you should be confident. And, and there's gonna be people at every different level. There's some people here today that you can stop at the first point, right? Maybe for the first time, it, it finally clicked for you. Maybe for the first time, you understand that Christ died for you while you were still a sinner, while you were still far away, while you were still ungodly. And you don't have to feel like you have to clean yourself off to show up to him because he's already done the work for you. So some of you just need to pray that prayer. You need to say, God, I believe for the first time in my whole life, I believe that you came and that you died and that your blood can do something about my sin. Some of you are right there. Others of you are in that middle section. You just need to pray to God. God, I finally get it. I finally understand that conversion wasn't the peak of my relationship with you, but it was the start of my relationship with you. And that I can become more like you. So you you need to pray. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for, for coming, for dying, but also not for leaving me when I've continued to mess up, when I've continued to make mistakes. Some of you need to pray that prayer so that you're ready. When the devil comes and whispers, when he comes and accuses, when he comes and tells you that your moment really isn't that significant and that God's not really working in your life. Some of you need to sit in that moment. And the final thing is some of you need to boast about what God did. Some of you in this, in this moment of quiet reflection, you need to be having this moment uh, with like a huge smile, just happy, just thankful for everything that God's done for you for the fact that Jesus did come and he did die and it's the most transformational thing. And in this moment, you just need to boast about your God. And here's the amazing thing. When you boast about God, when you're having a great day, when things are good, it's a great reminder for when things are bad. Like I said, the devil is gonna come. He's going to accuse. He's gonna try and get you when you're weak. But the amazing thing is that when you boast when you're happy, when you boast when things are good, when you talk about how good God has been in the good times, you can be reminded in the bad that that God didn't change that our God didn't change. So with that, we're going to move into a moment of quiet reflection, and then I'll pray at the end before we go into our final song. Dear God, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God that we can be confident in. God, we thank you, and we believe that you came and you died while we were still sinners, while we were still far away, while we were still indifferent to you, God, and that you gave us mercy and you gave us grace and you gave us hope and we didn't care about any of those things. God, we also thank you for the fact that you're not going to leave us. Conversion is a moment. It's a moment where we're close to you, but it's the beginning of a relationship as we become sanctified, as we become more like you day after day after day. And God, maybe more importantly than anything, we boast about you, God. We believe that you did these things. We are so incredibly confident in you, God. We believe that you came, and that you died, and that you changed lives, God. So God, I lift up these prayers that were lifted up during... This moment of reflection, I, I lift up the prayers that are going to be prayed in this final song and into this week, God, for everybody that's, that's chewing on this message, that's trying to believe that they should be confident in Christ, God. I lift up those prayers, and I pray together with them, God. I pray together because I believe that prayer works, God. I believe that you are real and that you hear us when we cry out to you. So this week, whatever that prayer was, whatever the reflection was, in just the last few minutes, God, I believe that those things are powerful and that those things are real.